idea that Blacks were slaves as if they had no other identity, as opposed to kings and queens in Africa who had advanced knowledge, or that even that there were civilizations before our civilization that was far more advanced than what we are right now. Yeah. And we think that we're like at the pinnacle of, of evolution right now. And we've got the sickest people living on the planet. We've got the highest suicide rates. We have most people medicating just to be alive on the planet right now, either for emotional issues or physical issues. And we think that this is advanced civilization and that the people running the show, like as if the, you know, the highest office in North America is like the person who's the leader of the planet, basically. And like that's supposed to be representative of like mass like enlightenment and, and technological advance or something in it. Hi everyone, I am Nicolette Richet and I am your host of the Eat Real to Heal podcast. Now, as you can see from the background, I'm actually in my 78 VW van pulled over on the side of the road in uh, Campbell River, BC, where I came for a week with my girls so that they can attend an equestrian uh, horse riding camp so they can learn all about taking care of horses and how to ride them in a kind and humane and wonderful way, how to connect with them. And I did that because my kids have been home with me since March 15th, since covid um, struck and we had to close down our businesses and I'm starting to realize that you know three and a half four months in it's really getting challenging to figure out um, how to balance out my work hours with my kids being at home making sure that they're happy but then also making sure that I'm able to fulfill my role in running the green mustache companies and the richer health companies and the wellness center and I have to admit it has not been easy um, it's been joyous, I have to say. I love being home and on my property in Pemberton. It's a gorgeous space. And normally I'm on the road and traveling for work or traveling just to get to the office. And it really is, has been uh, pretty challenging. And, but to be home has been fantastic. Fantastic! It's the longest amount of time that I've ever spent on my property. And in several years, it's the longest amount of time that I've been able to just have, you know, endless days with my kids. Now, of course, there's been lots of fighting. There's been lots of love. There's been lots of flow. There's been lots of chaos. It's been literally everything all rolled into this COVID pandemic experience. But we're just taking it one day at a time, one week at a time. And so I actually brought my kids to Campbell River because we found this great um, outdoor, amazing horse camp where the kids could be outdoors and where the groups are really tiny, but we feel that, you know, we're not spreading, um, contributing to the spread of the COVID virus. We're still, you know, self-isolating as much as we can to make sure that the spread doesn't continue. Now, in being here on the side of the road, I realized that I actually love consistency and I am a perfectionist. And so it was really hard for me to um, record this intro that I'm about to record for this amazing podcast that I finally got to do with Sarinda Hoylett. She is a beautiful human in the Sea to Sky Corridor. I'm going to tell you all about her. But 
Normally, I'm all set up in my podcast studio with my microphone and with my background that is, you know, beautiful. And, uh, you know, I tried to set that up in our Airbnb where we were staying and that didn't work because it was really too noisy. I tried to set it up in a hotel room that I booked for the night, um, but that turned out to not work out as well. And then I just was like, well, we'll just postpone the podcast until I realized that I am a perfectionist. And when all things are not perfect, um, it's really hard for me to move forward. So I like that this brought this up for me this week, um, but it's also been really hard because it's holding me back from doing a lot of really important things that I want to do that will allow me to fulfill the dreams and the desires that I have for my business. So I don't know about you listeners out there. I am sure that many of you are perfectionists. But I have decided um, after sitting here in my van thinking, am I going to record here in the van or, you know, wait till I get back home next week to record, which would mean delaying this awesome show for you for another week. And I just decided to go for it. But a lot of people think that just because I run a business, uh, several businesses, and that I have several employees, that I'm just a getter done type of person. And that is furthest from the truth. I am a human who is afflicted by all of the self-sabotaging um, you know, uh, tricks that our subconscious mind holds over us. And in this case, it really got the better of me. And then I realized, what is holding me back? I love my van. I'm in a 78 Volkswagen van. This is going to be the van that is going to be my support vehicle for running and biking across Canada, 7,000 kilometers, starting on June 1st next year. We are going to convert this van into an electric vehicle, and then we're going to raffle the van off to some amazing soul. We're going to pick their ticket. And they're going to get a fully converted electric um, 78 classic VW van. And this van is our happy place. And so why wouldn't I want to bring this podcast to you out of this van? I don't know. So if you're a perfectionist out there, um, here's my advice. You know, figure out what's holding you back from accomplishing your goals, your mini tasks, your big tasks, whatever it is that you have set out um, in in front of you, ahead of you, what is stopping you from accomplishing it? Yes, mine is perfectionism. It might be for you. It might be fear of failure. It might be um, fear of disappointing others. It could be guilt. It could be, um, you know, shame. It could be, you know, there's a million reasons why, but the minute you tap into it, and you actually hold that in front of you. And that's exactly what I did in my van. It was like I put it in my hand and I said, what is holding me back from recording this podcast, this intro to the podcast? The podcast was already done in my studio. This is just the intro. And when the word perfectionism really, you know, screamed out loudly and I saw it sitting there in the palm in front of my hand, I, it just made me laugh. It made me realize how silly it is. So just even voicing in it, voicing it, acknowledging it, um, understanding that it's just a thing, really. It's just a thing. It's not even really a tangible thing, even though I'm holding it in my hand like it is. And once you just look at it and regard it, it's amazing how you can make decisions to then overcome it. So either go over it, around it, through it, bust it up, whatever it is. And I realized, I mean, journalists are out there all the time bringing us news from the field, from the front lines. And it doesn't 
you know, things don't have to be perfect. The sound doesn't have to be perfect. What's more important is bringing the story to people. And Sarinda's story is so important because it's all about Black Lives Matter. It's all about sustainability. It's about taking care of each other as humans, as citizens of the planet. It's about taking care of the planet and so much more. So let's dive in to so who is Sarinda? So normally I'd have, you know, my notes up here on the screen, but I don't today. So I'm just going to read it from my iPhone, her bio, because I want to make sure I really nail this because Sarinda is such a beautiful human being that I'm so excited that you all get to know. So Sarinda is an integrative wellness practitioner. Her practice focuses on supporting individuals in a balanced and sustainable approach to health and wellness. She specializes in healing modalities rooted in Ayurveda, plant-based nutrition, herbology, and somatic body therapies. Probably something I need right now to move me through this idea of things needing to be perfect because actually it's just better done instead of perfect. Um, Sarinda has worked as a massage practitioner uh, practitioner for over 25 years as a yoga instructor and a plant-based chef as well. I have been able to sample Sarinda's food like over the years, endless times, and her food is spectacular. It is so delicious. And she's an incredible instructor as well. And she's currently working as a wellness coach and completing her doula training. And you can connect with her on Instagram at Sarinda H or through her website at SarindaHoylet.com, which is a beautiful website. And her business is called Wild Planet Raw food. So let's welcome Sarinda to the Eat Real to Heal podcast and let's dive into this incredible show. So important what you're about to hear. And you know what to do. If you love this show, please share it with others and invite them into the Eat Real to Heal world where they can learn all about how to use food as medicine to reverse their chronic diseases, but also how to incorporate and create a whole entire um, holistic wellness approach to your life because we need balance in all areas of our life as well. So we talk about food predominantly, but we also talk about sleep. We also talk about sex. We also talk about um, all different kinds of nutrition. We talk about wellness, about exercise, movement, so many different things, because once we have all of that in balance, then that is when we get to experience true optimal health. So welcome, Serenda, to the show. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I'm your host, Nicolette Richet. And on today's show, we have Sarinda Hoylett, all the way from beautiful Pemberton, British Columbia. Thank you, Sarinda, for being on our show today. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here. Super excited about also what brought you onto the show, which really started off with us bumping into each other at the farmer's market last week in Pemberton. And we just got into an incredible conversation. Um, I was so inspired by our talk afterwards. And I was like, finally, I have found the woman that needs to be on our show so we can really dive into so many beautiful topics, but one particularly that is at the heart of society right now, which is Black Lives Matter. But I don't want to get into that right now because we are going to touch on that. We are going to touch on the interconnectivity of nutrition and health and COVID and wellness and pain and discomfort. Um, and of course, Black Lives Matter. But you were 
uh, one of the few people in our community that I felt could really enrich this conversation. So I'm excited to dive into that with you. So Sarinda, Sarinda, let's dive into first, I want to really know about what brought you to the world of health and wellness and nutrition, because you are an expert in the field, especially in our community um, around nutrition and health and wellness. So what brought you here? Um, for me, it started, I mean, it started probably when I was quite young, but I'd say my personal journey into sort of unraveling things probably started in my late teens and early 20s. So um, when I was younger, I was super sensitive to a lot of foods. I probably was um, instinctually turned off by things that weren't good for me. So as a young kid, I was super sensitive to dairy. The thought of like eating a McDonald's hamburger grossed me out and I felt like there was something wrong with me and I actually had to like, like, direct myself into eating those things because I was, I thought it was what people did, right? But instinctually, I kind of knew that all those things didn't work for me. Um, and I was also quite sick often as a kid. I would have colds. I would have, I had mono for the better part of a year, which turned into a pneumonia. Um, I'd say I had kind of some degree of chronic fatigue even after that. Um, and I was put on one round of antibiotics after another. Um, I was on allergy shots. So probably every time I got a cold, my whole microbiome would get wiped out. And I was in a cycle of that all the time. So, I mean, I could go back and probably analyze what was going on just based on nutrition and all those things, which is, I mean, suffice it to say is like, I kind of was sick all the time and just thought that was normal. And our good family friends were doctor so we would just go visit the doctor and our friend all the time and that was just the pattern right people just kind of gave you a pill for things or that thick syrupy purple cough syrup all of it yeah and I mean even despite that I probably didn't have the most unhealthy childhood like my mom made homemade food and you know even in the 80s she was pretty conscious about we'd go to the health food store she would make you know tofu and stuff for us so she was kind of on to things but that's still in the scope of the 70s where you'd go to the grocery store and like vegetables were apples and oranges and iceberg lettuce. And, you know, even though I had a, and fortunately my Jamaican father, we would go to the fruit market and we'd hand pick out mangoes and plantains and all the yummy fruits and stuff like that. So, you know, even despite my illness, we were fairly healthy on a relative scale. And so um, was, was your, you have a brother as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And was he also quite sick as a child or was Not he? Not as much. No, no, I was definitely kind of more sensitive and he, he wasn't, he, I don't, I don't recall him being kind of as much like me. And I also feel like for part of it, it was like, I wasn't in my right environment. Like I was growing up for the most part in suburbia. Um, I hated being in school in a fluorescent building all day long. I felt it just made me feel sick, you know? So you know, and as I got older and into my adult life, I found my place in nature and in the outdoors and in British Columbia and, and just all of those things that didn't exist for me. So when I was a kid, you know, I would go to the park and I would like climb trees and I'd hang out there by myself or I would get on my bike and bike down to Lake Ontario, which wasn't that far from me, but it's like a polluted beach that you can't actually go in the water. So like I would seek it out, you know, in our summers we would spend 
up in Northern Ontario and I would go to a cottage or I'd go to summer camps. And so that was a great place for me for sure. Um, but it wasn't until I moved away and moved out West that I kind of got fully immersed in what I would say is like a healthy environment for me. Um, and then also I was a gymnast when I was younger. So from a very young age, um, I got put on a scale. And so probably when I was like 75 pounds, I, I was told how much I weighed. And I was probably in a growth spurt. So every week we would get put on the scale. And then, you know, a week later, I'd be two pounds heavier and then two pounds heavier. And so right away, I became very conscious of my weight. So I was, you know, tweaking what I would eat based on my weight at a super young age. So I kind of had this dis disordered relationship with food. One, because it didn't make me feel good. And two, because I was trying to sort of not get bigger as a child, which is so dysfunctional. Um, and that and then, was the way it was at that time too. Like I know for sure now it is that way in certain gyms, but I mean, it's I, not my, the same. No, my girls are in gymnastics and the thought of anybody ever putting them on a scale, like I'd be like, that is criminal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so much more body positive and healthy. And, um, you know, it was just, you know, it was like in the area of like Russian gymnasts and like Nadia Comaneci, Comaneci and all yeah. of it, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I got out of gymnastics kind of in my early teens and I actually did not menstruate until I was probably like the second last girl in my grade at the time. So yes. my body was kind of stunted and then um, I probably started menstruating. I think it was probably like grade 10, 11. Oh, wow. Which yeah. is like ridiculously late for even compared to girls in this area, which is in this era, which is crazy. And then I kind of had a few years where I wasn't too, too much into that. And then later I got into rowing, which um, I don't know if you, how much you know, but there's sort of lightweight and heavyweight rowing. And oh, I so no idea. as a lightweight rower, you're 125 pounds or less. And so Again, like as it later in my teens, I was like back on the scale and having to be a certain weight. So that kind of reinvigorated that sort of fixation around food. And, and then that got into sort of calorie restriction. So I was eating like healthy, like I would eat fruit and stuff, but then that was the area where you could get like zero calorie soups and all of this ridiculousness, right? So there was just kind of this constant manipulation and then probably like laxative use and caffeine just like whatever I could do but like not really be a full-on anorexic you know right and so yeah. I was training you know several times a day whether it was in the boat or whether it was in the gym whether it was running and again I went years where if I was in kind of peak training I wouldn't be menstruating Wow. So you were um, right. You know, what I see with our clients is when they're not menstruating, we see that there's always generally a stress on their body. And oh, by yeah. switching them on to really nutrient dense food within two weeks, they start menstruating regularly. Like I oh, even right. had women who've never had their period, even as 40 year olds who, you know, yeah. switch to nutrient dense food that we teach um, and metabolic nutrition, all of a sudden they get their period for the first time. So we see mm -hmm. that direct relationship with, um, you know, physical stress emotional stress and nutritional stress on what that has in the body but to see that you've experienced that as well as a result of um you know the training you did just shows that you're probably right on the cusp there right like walking a fine line yeah and and also just like the negative self-talk around the body like that your body like you know so it's like in 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 sports or i think even in magazines back then there was this kind of idea that men had speedier metabolisms than women 
and it was easier for them to lose weight. And so like, there was kind of like this hatred toward like this kind of battle going on with my body, like that it was working against me or it wasn't working for me, or Mm -hmm. how can I be doing all this and like not losing the weight or whatever it was like, there's kind of like this, like, and in retrospect, it's so shocking to me to just even have that dialogue going on in your head where you're, you're basically hating your body as if it's like this other thing. Yeah. And so um, later, like probably later in my teens, I started getting like, just like violent bloating and um, you know, that probably had a lot of things to do with a lot of things, but, at, but at the time, um, you know, probably in the late eighties, even uh, my mom had seen a naturopath or somebody who had kind of given, gotten her onto this concept of gluten-free food. And so she'd started making like these, um, you know, gluten-free flour mixes and she'd make muffins and stuff. So I became aware of the fact that like gluten sensitivity was a thing, which at the time wasn't super popular. And that was right about the time that I kind of moved out here and was living on my own. And so there wasn't like gluten-free food, so to speak, right? But I would find like, you know, brown rice cereals or corn chips were gluten-free. And so I kind of was like trying to figure out what to eat and avoid those things. Um, and then that probably slowly got me on to like macrobiotic eating. And then I could always go to East Indian restaurants and so kind of vegetarian food. And I just started kind of learning more and more about nutrition by just sheer necessity of having to find other ways to eat. Um, And then once, and then little things would happen. Like we were, I was somewhere talking to this man and he just was like, have you ever tried spirulina? And then I had friends that were into blue green algae. So then that kind of just like put me on a little bit of, you kind of get into the world that way. And then I remember being on a trip in Guatemala and going into this really sweet little herbal store. And like, there was all of these herbs and, and there's no laws there. So under each herb and plant, there would be a description of all the benefits for it. And so I was like, it opened up this whole world of like amazing that you had these alternatives to all of these horrific medicines that I've been taking my whole life. So even like when I went down there, people were getting vaccines for malaria and stuff like that, which I didn't get, but then you're down there. I'm like, there's a herb for malaria, right? Like there's, there's, there's things for everything. And so that just kind of opened me up to like, I don't need to go down that route ever again. And so, I mean, that was like almost three decades ago that that kind of started, but that led me, you know, through, through studying Ayurveda, through studying microbiotics, to getting into herbology, to, um, you know, essential oils and getting into healing work. And then, so I, I, you know, I, I would just seek out healers wherever I would go. And whenever I travel somewhere, I would find out, find some kind of crazy healer that was there or somebody that was practicing yoga out of their basement or whatever. So I would just learn all these teachings and I kind of was just like voracious for knowledge. So I just buy books and buy everything. And then, you know, I had a girlfriend that I spent three months in Alaska with fishing and it was a really bad fishing year. So we would just, you know, we spend a lot of time, we would go to yoga, we would go for rolfing sessions. We did workshops with these South Americans that came up to teach um, flower essences. And then she had Crohn's disease. So Mm. we would just spend a lot of time at this natural food market. We had all of our health books and Ayurveda books. And so I would make food for her and we were all about balancing our doshas. And 
ultimately it was probably Ayurveda that cured her of her Crohn's disease. Um, so I would just dive deep into all these things and do kind of my own healing detective work. Um, and well, I, I did want to, I just want to jump into that. So hold that thought there because, um, there's two parts about this, like for our listeners, you know, if you're hearing this, you know, there's two things about Sarinda. So number one, it's this intuitive side of you that, you know, knows that something's not right. Like, you know, that your diet potentially is connected to your health because how many people have you met Sarinda that, you know, have all of these issues. And then you say, well, have you considered your diet? And they're like, well, what's diet got to do with it? Oh yeah, for sure. Like, right. People just don't make the connection between food and their symptoms because we've been raised in a society that says, well, if you have symptoms, then the answer is drugs, medicine, yeah. what your GP says, but they won't even stop to think that it could be their sleep, their stress, you know, predominantly their diet um, and nutrients that they're maybe missing and toxicity. But meanwhile, you know, they just keep trying to look for the next medication, the next medication. And then the second part that I just really love about, you know, what you touched on there is that first of all, your intuition was strong. And then the second part is that you're knowledge hungry. And, you know, like that to me is one of the pieces that I find with my clients are the ones that are the most knowledge hungry are the ones that get results and will find that cure and the, the ability to overcome their disease. Like you have, and it seems to me like you had two of these factors, which I don't know, was that part of your personality? Is that something that you had to learn along the way? Like, do you, is well, that I just? Think, I mean, I've always been super curious. And I think I just, I went through so many, like, and we'll get to this probably more in the sense of like identity and culture and all those things. But I think I had just so much internal, like pain and discomfort, just um, like, emotionally which came out probably in the way i treated myself physically but they all kind of wove together and evolved into we'll we'll get to that you know later on but like i think it just there there was definitely a breaking point i remember i would i had gone i'd gone to mcgill for a year i'd come out to to whistler in the summer i went back to montreal and then after a few weeks of being there and again, I was kind of, I was rowing at the time. So I was like getting up super early in the morning. I was going and training. I'd go to the gym. I would run for two hours. I, my knees were wrecked. Like I was just such a wreck. And I was so unhappy. Like, I mean, I loved the rowing, but it was like at school, I was pretty miserable. And just, I, I, I broke down. Like I literally had like a full, like I was crying for days. It was just like, it was like all of the emotion of my youth and my high school years kind of just came to a head. And I remember just thinking, I'm only going to do what feels good right now. Like I'm only going to be in pursuit of what nourishes my heart. And I knew that I felt so good when I was in British Columbia. And so I literally like got back either on a plane or in a car with my friend. And like that January, I came back to Whistler. And so from then on, I was kind of like, I'm just going to pursue what feels good to me and what what's right. And it's not like I felt better immediately, but I just kept on seeking out things that like resonated with my soul. And so that was just, and it was hard. Like that was never easy. Like all of that, all of those years, it was hard because it was like, there was always this voice of like, well, you should be at school. You're throwing away these things. Like you should be doing that. Like, what are you doing? And so there was just like these years of like, 
struggling, but knowing that I was heading in the right direction. And so, um, yeah, I mean, and I was stubborn too. I mean, there was a point sort of like where I got super sick. I had this like in this cut on my knee that became infected and it was like infected for, this went on for weeks and months and I would put like these poultices on it and I would try everything. And, you know, I was like, I was voraciously hungry. Like it was like, I was kind of, and I didn't, that's not my typical thing. Like I just kind of was like almost wasting away. And that was when, and, and I had some, a couple of friends who had like a blood, dis, dis, an illness that they'd come back traveling from. And um, my mom was really worried that I had like the flesh eating disease. And she's like, you have to go see a doctor. I went to the doctor and he was like, you need to go on antibiotics. And he showed me like this book of like all these babies with impetigo and, you know, told me that I had to take this, these drugs. So I took the bottle and I went home and I was just so stubborn that I refused to take them. And then somebody had recommended um, Jayashri Lambert. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's yeah. an Ayurvedic so someone said I should go see her so I went to see her in the city and she gave me like all just these explain herbs. just explain who she is for our audience she's, who's a, listening. she's an Ayurvedic practitioner and subsequent to that I did train with her in in Ayurvedic massage and all the treatments and stuff like that and just explain to people because there's a lot of people who listen to our show that literally have never heard of chiropractic care or they're afraid of it. They've never heard of Ayurvedic work. They think it's, you know, hokey. So just like, let's explain to the audience what Ayurvedic medicine so is. Ayurvedic medicine would be traditional um, Indian, East Indian medicine. So there's a whole school of surgeries. It's based on um, prevention, your unique constitutions. Um, herbs, nutrition, all those things. And so I, I was aware of it, but I, I, this was like the first time I went to see a practitioner and actually kind of her take my pulses and, and kind of suss out what was going on with me. And, um, and the doctor had said that I had some kind of strep or staph infection is what it was. And I, I don't know if I had the results from that test yet, but anyway, she gave me like all these these herbs to take internally. She told me what to eat. So basically kitchery and, um, and then she gave me like this paste. And I think it was like that really fragrant neem oil with golden seal, which is a natural antibiotic um, and a couple other things. And so I put that paste on my knee. I started, you know, eating the kitchery, which is basically rice and lentils and spices. And within days I felt better and it com completely cleared up. And this had been dragging on for, for months, right? Mm -hmm. And so that just kind of reaffirmed to me like that that's my, that's my medicine, right? And the part about that too, that is, you know, I, I love that you did that and that you tried it because, uh, you know, a lot of times too, we can look at these things and say, well, how does this powder paste that I'm going to put on my knee, how is that better than an antibiotic, right? Sure. It says it's antiviral or antibacterial or, um, but you know, you went ahead and did it and you got the results from it. And one thing that we have to remember is that up until a hundred years ago, you know, or, or even less than that, like before antibiotics were discovered, we had to use all these other methods for like hundreds of thousands of years around the world. And these herbs have existed always and people have used them as medicine always. But I love that you went and actually tried it um, and did that because if you had actually gone the route of taking the antibiotics, like 
you know, we know how that decimates the microbiome and how it almost is like wiping you clean. And then you have to start fresh to build your body back up, which takes like almost two years after taking a round, a round of And nobody tells you that, you know, no one, no one tells you that if, if you, because of course there's, I mean, it's great that we have like these antibiotics for extreme conditions and totally. when you need them, but we clearly, we know that we over dispense them. And then when they're used, nobody tells you how to, or, and I guess the awareness wasn't there. Like, you know, just to be fair, the awareness mm -hmm. about the microbiome was not there. It's not something that was heavily studied in like until the last few decades, really. So, you know, now we have the knowledge and we should use it, but, you know, so, so yeah, that, that, you know, and then eventually, I stumbled upon a book that had, I bought it because of the Ayurveda, but you know, in the back of it, it had all these raw food recipes in it. And so I kind of slowly just started tinkering in the kitchen and I would make things that I could make that didn't require a dehydrator or anything like that. And then I just started noticing that I started feeling better and better. Like all the little, like as much as I was doing well, it was like all the little glitches in my digestion and mucus and all the things just kind of cleared up and like, I kind of had this very satiated feeling like that all of my cells were being nourished. And um, actually that came later because I had my kids before, but um, yeah. So this, like the whole process of sort of like health and nutrition just has continued to be refined and, you know, our bodies change over time. So it's like not one thing is going to work for you at all phases in your life, which I think is super important, right? Because we're different when we're children versus when we're teens versus when we're young adults versus when we're mothers. And um, again, and you could maybe relate to this, but it's like, because I had all of that time working up to the time when I got pregnant, by the time I got pregnant, I was like, and I had one girlfriend who'd been pregnant before me who had the um, Ina May Gaskin book, Spiritual Midwifery. And again, I was like, okay, so there's an alternative to childbirth too and mothering. Like, yeah. and that just took me down another rabbit hole of like all these beautiful women who had had natural births before me and herbology around pregnancy and nutrition around pregnancy and like this whole beautiful idea of just natural birthing, like we've done since the beginning of time and this whole kind of Hollywood idea of like women screaming in pain with their feet in the air, having babies was just like bonkers to me. And so yeah. again, I was like, okay, I've already avoided the doctors for the last decade. I'm not going to start going back to them now that I'm pregnant. Cause you know, and that was that, and that was also kind of a reckoning with my body of like, all of a sudden I've got this thing growing inside of me that I'm going to nourish to the best of my capacity and I'm not going to starve this thing. And I've got to get right with my body and I've got to sort of get in line. So it really did sort of anchor me in my body. And it was kind of like the final piece of like, you know, just being in my body and, and loving it and, and supporting mm -hmm. it to the best of my ability. And so that was like such a gift and not something I could have ever imagined. Cause you know, when you're like the idea of like having a baby is just so foreign until you're kind of in that place yeah. with it. hundred. And again, to me, that's like, it's so shocking and heartbreaking how disconnected women are from birth. Mm -hmm. It's, it's astounding to me, like how we outsource it to doctors and to experts and to books and to, 
whatever. And it's like literally innate in our DNA to birth children. We're a mammal and every Ugh. mammal births a freaking baby. And we've managed to screw that up. And that's the part that, I mean, I taught intuitive birthing classes for couples for years and years. And so I got to watch lots of babies be born. I got to watch lots of women, you know, be pregnant. I taught prenatal for years and, and you hit the nail on the head. Like, you know, so many of these women were actually like pregnant and birthing in complete fear. And I get it. Like it is a new experience, your body, even though millions of women have, have gone through it and billions of women, I mean, your body's going through it the first time, but there was almost like no empowerment at all because it, it had been stripped from us through the medical system and by having experts in, in predominantly like white male doctors tell us what birth is, what it meant, how it's supposed to feel like, and then also what the birthing experience should feel like. And so these women literally were like, it was scarier to be pregnant and birth a child than it was for them to go bungee jumping, you know, with a cord around their ankles, you know, they would yeah. rather do that. No problem. And that was, it just made me so sad, but with the work that I was able to do with them, I mean, we were able to, you know, reinstill a little bit of that uh, autonomy and power back in, but man, it's like, it, it's, uh, we almost all need to come together and there's our women doing that thank mm -hmm. goodness. And there's midwives that are doing that and doulas that are doing that and practitioners that are doing that to help to bring back that power. But there's so much work needed in that yeah, area. Yeah. And we've kind of medicalized midwifery again. Totally. You know, we've kind of, it's, it's, it's good that we have the options now, but then those come with strings and it's, again, it really comes, it has to come from the, the woman as well. You know what I mean? As much as we can blame all these structures, it's like, until we're kind of like one with ourselves, it's like, like that's all the, that's the only way we can take our power back. Right. It's like, we can blame institutions and all those things. And, you know, I had choices and I made my choices, right. Yeah. Based on my own little bit of information that I had. And, you know, fortunately just, you know, and I think again, like this comes back to being other, like, because being other my whole life, it kind of just allowed me the thing of like, well, I don't really fit into this anyway. So I'm just going to follow what feels right for me. And it, none of the institutions that I was raised around made sense to me. And so it was a really easy thing for me to not go that way. It's like as a child sitting in church, I could not wrap my head around that mm -hmm. sitting in schools, like all of the things that kind of are normal institutions of our society just didn't sit well with me. And so um, pregnancy and birthing kind of, I, again, I just feel so grateful that I was around at least a handful of women who had done something different. And so the, 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 the option was there for me of, of a way to do something differently. And I felt like on both occasions with both my births, I was in such great hands and, you know, I, I'm just so glad that that opportunity kind of was there and that I chose it. And then I was, you know, subsequently surrounded by amazing women to raise my children around. And, you know, it, I, I still am sad when I see that people aren't kind of surrounded by that. And I don't know how I landed in it, but I, I was so fortunate. Well, I think you said it yourself is that you chose it. And, you know, I hear 
a lot, you know, I like to listen to the language that people use. And a lot of people will say things like, oh, you're so lucky, or I wish I had this, or wouldn't it be so nice? You know, but the reality is, is if you're wishing for something, then you have to take the action to make it a reality. I mean, and I was, we have so, so many similarities, um, you and I, and even though we've lived in the same community for so long, I mean, I wish I, you know, we had just had way more time together, but we've just been in the throes of running businesses and children and just life, you know, being in a, even though it's a quiet community, it's still a really busy lifestyle. And, but same thing. And when you said, you know, um, you know, that you, you know, being other, you know, where you don't necessarily fit into the, to the current systems that are in place for us. And you are always questioning them. And, you know, I was very much in that place, but when it came to having kids as well, I remember specifically making the choice that I would raise my kids in community like with girlfriends and we would cook together and we would put the babies to bed together and we would nurse together. We would do all of those things. Like I had a party at my birth, pretty much. Um, my girlfriends were there, you know, along with my midwife and, and it was so beautiful bringing a baby, like all three of my girls into the world that way. Um, and I do, I feel sad when other women don't choose that for themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we see it as well. I hear that a lot of women say things like, oh, I don't want anybody to be in my birth because it should just be, you know, me and my partner and that's it, which I also understand that. But then I also see that that carries on to not wanting to also raise the child with others present and mm -hmm. around. It's almost like they feel that they have to be in their isolated home doing it themselves, you know, following their own strict schedules where I'm like, no, like you can do this in community as well. Mm -hmm. And so you chose that for yourself. So even though you say you were fortunate, I mean, you know, fortunate because you chose that hundred yeah. percent. And it, I mean, yeah, it, it was, it was really magical and, and yes, of course I chose it, but it, it just, all the pieces were in place for it to happen the way it did. Um, yeah. And then raising your kids. So let's just talk about raising your kids, like the nutritional side of that. How was that and what kind of choices were you making for them? And, and how um, was that so, in relationship to your community as well? Like with all the other, you know, parents that were also raising their kids in and around your child. Right. So, um, I mean, we, of course, like I, I was kind of already onto eating healthily and all those things. And so um, you know, breastfeeding came as easy as breastfeeding can, you know, despite the little glitches at the beginning, like I breastfed my kids, both of them for the better part of two years, like my son definitely. And to this day, it's funny how they're all so similar. Like, you know, he, even after a year old, he was barely eating every day. Like I was like, oh, well maybe we should give him some solid food today, but we'd forget. And he wasn't, he didn't seem to mind. And even to this day, he's not like this voracious eater you know and then so it just you know it was whole foods like that was like there was no baby food or any prepared food and like that like my midwife gave me like a sweet little food grinder and we'd use that sometimes and you know I think both my kids were different with their first foods but just like I think my son probably started eating more in the fall so it was probably like sweet potatoes and you know that kind of thing and you know like rice and just whatever it was. Um, neither of my kids had dairy when they were younger and I really kind of avoided gluten with them and like any refined sugar or anything like that. Um, 
And then as far as like animal food, I think that kind of came a bit later and not like as a focus, but um, yeah, like they kind of ate well-rounded and, and then my daughter who's definitely got more of an appetite and loves food. She was like quicker to get to like kind of reach out on the table and want food um, and kind of sought it out. And, you know, she, again, her, her first foods were different. Like they were like avocados and watermelon, like things that I probably ate when I was pregnant with her. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, both of my kids have never gone to the doctor for anything other than a few broken bones, mountain biking, but they've never sort of like had any illnesses per se, other than like maybe a bit of congestion here and there from eating too much of like food that's not good. And then, you know, that's usually quickly remedied with like a bath, some ginger tea and, you know, just really simple things. Um, rest. My son used to like beg me to miss school because all the other kids miss school all the time and he was never sick to miss school. So he would just like take days and go skiing instead to make up for those days. But That's yeah, awesome. like they, and I think, I mean, from what I've noticed from, with kids is that you really, when you get to the micro, the idea of the microbiome and how you're basically feeding different things in yourself. So it's like, if you're eating sugar all the time, then you're going to be feeding the sugar bacteria in your gut. And I think with kids, when you lay the groundwork early, then that's the bacteria, you know, that's the microbiome that they develop. Aside from the fact when you, you kind of impregnate or when you kind of, what do you call the term when you have a vaginal birth and you're sort of giving your kids that initial microbiome and an immune system through the, the delivery process. But mm -hmm. it's like, and then whatever foods you start feeding them from the beginning. So if you're giving your kids processed foods that have all these things, then that's kind of the microbiome that they develop, right? So I found like my kids, you know, they crave healthy food. And of course they go through like a phase probably at a certain point in their teens when they start breaking away from you and they can make their own choices and they go with their friends and, you know, they want to try different things. And so they kind of try it, but they don't really have an appetite for it you know, they have a really good sense of how food makes them feel. Um, and so they make like wise choices. And, you know, they kind of both of them have different constitutions or different things that they crave or kind of imbalance them. And they just kind of have an intuitive knowing around it. And they, I feel like they're what we should all be in the sense of like, they have an immune system that works. And, yeah. you know, they they're resilient and um, yeah, like they have a healthy relationship there to their body and to food. And um, it's interesting like to watch. Cause I just, I, I, I look at their, their kind of childhood versus my childhood or just, you know, the awareness that we as parents have now versus our own parents. And also they're exposed to, I think which is cool with this generation is that they're exposed to so much social media and healthy food is trending. Yeah. You know, so, so they kind of see like, even, you know, like they'll see videos of like other kids or influencers making smoothies and healthy food. So it's like, whatever I've been doing is only being reinforced, which is kind of cool. So that's not like there's anything, and I don't really impose anything on them per se, but it's like, there's nothing really for them to rebel against or, you know, it's But just... I also think though, that that is 
because you laid that groundwork, like you said, like I often say, God, I wish I was a fascist and, you know, I could dictate what kids should eat from, you know, birth until at least they're two or three years old. So we can create that like healthy microbiome foundation and that good, healthy gut brain access and almost make it mandatory that kids are not allowed to have refined processed foods. Because once they get an appetite for, you know, what a raw tomato or cooked tomato tastes like, or what a raw carrot or cooked carrot can taste like, then their brains are open to the textures and the flavors and the sights and the smells and colors and everything mm-hmm. instead of being afraid of them, which I also see a lot of kids. That, yeah. And I've seen that too. Yeah. Don't eat fruits and vegetables and it's, but it's, they just haven't been exposed to it, but you know, it's, um, the part that you mentioned, even just about resiliency, like it's to lay that groundwork of resiliency so that things like, you know, when the common cold comes, you know, wafting through a town like ours, because it's a tourist, you know, we live in a tourist zone. So we have millions of people coming through every year, bringing every type of illness you can imagine from every part of the world. But if you can keep your body and your immune system healthy and thriving, then you're not going to be susceptible to those illnesses and diseases. And so, or COVID, for example. Right. And I love that idea of like the terrain, right? It's like, just because we're all in the same room and the same bug comes to that room, we're not all going to get sick or express the illness the same way. Like I have been hands-on with other humans for over 25 years from all corners of the planet, up close and intimate, and I don't get sick. Yeah. Because you're teaching yoga, you're teaching nutrition classes, you're doing massage therapy and healing work, and you are exposed to to a vast variety of, you know, bugs and viruses and everything when you're in contact with these people. So yeah, it really shows. And I mean, I'll get run down or I'll get tired, but I I, I feel it immediately. And then I kind of course correct. So it's like, Mm -hmm. if I feel that, you know, my system's overwhelmed. It's like, I have to stop. I need to take a bath. I kind of just check what I'm doing and, you know, check how I am emotionally. And then, you know, it, you got to just keep, I just kind of see it as energy. Right. And it's like, you just have to kind of keep the flow. And I think our culture is just so wired to think that it's like normal to get sick it's normal to go, oh, that person is sick. So I caught it from them. Mm-hmm. Like, I never see somebody as being sick, a threat to me. Like I don't, yeah. it just does not compute to me that because that person has it, that I would get it. Like, I kind of just think that it's like, I, for the most part, and I, the way I see it with even in my, myself or my kids is like, it's kind of a, a process of elimination or detoxification. So it's like, if you're exhibiting symptoms of heat or fever or mucus or whatever it is like that's your body trying to regain homeostasis it's your body working for you so Mm -hmm. it's pushing out the mucus or the heat or whatever it doesn't want in it and so whether that comes in acne or a rash or a cold or an ear infection and all of those other things that are secondary infections like that's because it's that deep but Mm -hmm. that's not because you caught it from joe down the street like that's your own body reacting. And so, you know, the more that's in there, the more there is to come out. And so you're, you're receptive to that illness, either mentally or physically, whatever it is, right? And so, and again, I don't think being ill is anything to fear as well. It's yeah. like, it's just your body saying, hi, I'm working. We got to rest, right? And um, 
you know, and it's like even childhood diseases, like they'll say it's like, that's a way for your body to, it's like a muscle strengthening, right? So it's like, we're so worried about our kids getting sick or the chicken pox or whatever it is. And like, your body needs to go through those processes to, to strengthen and develop and to develop resiliency. And so we didn't evolve on this planet to be scared of every bug and disease. Like we wouldn't have gotten this far if we'd been in a bubble. No. And we kind of are in a bubble right now. We created a bubble for ourselves right now. And it's not, and you know, every immunologist will say it's not healthy to exist in a bubble where you're not exposed to challenges to your system and to your immune system. Your immune system is a muscle that needs to be exercised just like every other muscle in your body. And so we've kind of created this fear-based reality where people are hiding and thinking that that's the answer. But as soon as they step out of that bubble, the planet is still going on as it is. And our planet is filled with viruses and bacteria and fungi that are always going to be there. And, you know, even they've done research to show that, um, you know, every time we disrupt nature, whether we're clear cutting or putting in highways or roads, Mm -hmm. we we create more viruses. So to think that we can hide from them is completely absurd, right? So like we what have do you to be think in relationship with them? Well, exactly. And so now here we are in our COVID bubble. And, you know, and so I just want to like touch on that a little bit from, you know, what were your first thoughts when COVID hit and was in the news to how did you and your family navigate through that? And then also for a third question that I have for you is, you know, what is, what are you predicting for the future? Like as a result of what's been happening right now in the way we have, you know, isolated ourselves and what is that, you know, really going to mean for our immune systems, for our bodies, for our communities and for our children, especially now that we're in this, you know, crazy pandemic state? Yeah. Well, when I first heard about it, I, I mean, in general, I'm not really scared of most things, right? Like it wasn't like, especially in the early days when people kept on talking about, it, I was just like, okay, well, we've gone through SARS, we've gone through MERS, we've gone through H1N1. Like I've been on the front line with all these, not the front line is in the hospital, but I've been hands-on with people from all over the planet. And so I don't, I, for me personally, I wasn't sort of thinking that this was more of a threat to myself than anything. Um, you know, and then we, we shut down everything and went into lockdowns. So of course my inquiring mind starts delving into everything that I can find out about it and to, you know, to listen to respected people that I respect on the topic. Um, you know, I listened to several epidemiologists and immunologists and, you know, most of them had said, you know, at the beginning of this outbreak, they think that yes, taking a cautious measures that we did was a good, first step, you know, before they had the data, once the data presented itself, it became more obvious that the numbers that um, came from the original prediction that was a computer generated model were far, far off and that we're at that 0.0 whatever percent that it is. Um, And so the, you know, the, the threat of death from this disease or the people that it was affecting, it's generally people with more compromised immune systems and people with several comorbidities, right? Mm -hmm. Which is again, that whole idea of terrain um, supporting the illness. Um, 
And then, you know, also saying that, you know, quarantine is intended for sick people, not for well people. And that even children who have been shown not to be, you know, spreading the disease, um, we, there's even been studies to show that asymptomatic people aren't spreading the disease. Um, the collateral damage of the lockdown is quickly surpassing probably what we're going to see as a mortality rate. And we'll see this play out, you know. Um, and of course, I'm not an expert on that. But so our, our take initially was obviously just kind of, you know, ground out at our home. And I love being at home with my family. It gave us a time to rest. It started, got us, gave us time to start the garden and grow food and eat healthy food all the time. And that's a privilege, which I'm super grateful for. Um, and then I love medicinal mushrooms and I love having, you know, we make lots of like shots with ginger and turmeric and natural antibiotics and antivirals. Um, uh, and so just like clean food and all the yummy supplements that we have around anyways. Um, I did consult with a homeopath who gave me the whole protocol because at the time we were supposed to go to Jamaica. So I wanted to kind of have a little arsenal of stuff. So I had a little, you know, homeopathic first aid kit if anybody should get sick. Um, so yeah, we just take care of ourselves. And again, it's just, it's all about cultivating resiliency. So that's um, all we can do. And yeah. I'm, for me, it's easy to quarantine. I don't have a problem with that. I don't, I don't, like, there's the part of me that doesn't think it's healthy for society, but as far as my own personal life, I don't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. um, I do, I do, the one obvious thing to me was A, the fear that's being perpetuated in the media, mm -hmm. B, that not one person has talked about wellness at all, and that you're, like, the, these at-risk populations are, lifestyle diseases of diabetes and heart disease and all of the things that we know and um also a lot of those areas where the hugest outbreaks were which were areas of high pollution in china in italy new york city mm -hmm. um zach bush is an amazing guy to listen to on that topic I which i love everything he has to say um you know and from a lot of people i've heard from we're going to cycle through these pen pandemics, however you want to call them, um, and these viruses coming out because we've done such a destructive thing to the planet. And so, you know, I think on a collective scale, it's kind of like we're all going through this illness and detoxification. And, um, you know, so I think there's beautiful silver linings to all of this because it's kind of created this whole level of awakening about all of the weaknesses in our culture, whether it's health, whether it's politics, whether it's racial issues, all of the things. And so I do think it's a really great necessary purge. Mm -hmm. um, the way it's being dealt with is questionable because our, our way of dealing with things is to try to engineer things like we've tried to engineer nature and we've tried to engineer medicine. And now we're trying to engineer a cure to a disease that we've created essentially with our mismanagement of the planet in the first place. So um yeah it's it's to me i think since the beginning of this there's a couple narratives going on there's the narrative of the media mm -hmm. and then there's what's really playing out and so i think unfortunately most people have one source of information that guides their you know their thought process um and so people are really in a state of fear like this is something that 
has never hit the planet and since the beginning of time that we can't handle that this somehow is something different that warrants us shutting down the planet and hiding in our homes until somebody saves us. And I don't really think that that approach is like, if you, if you look at the trajectory of that approach is that means that we'll never leave our houses and that this will be a new normal, which is nowhere near normal. Well, and this is the part right now that, I mean, there's a few things that you touched on. One piece I want to go back and just touch on is the fact that I love how you said that you were supposed to go to Jamaica and you went and saw your homeopath and they um, gave you your kit, right, to travel with. And that is a very proactive approach. Like I don't go anywhere without my homeopathic kit as well. And I often, you know, have said this in podcasts that, you know, my kids have had fevers and I bring, and I welcome fevers, you know, all the time because I'm like, it shows that the body is responding to whatever is, you know, happening inside and around the body. But we would give them homeopathy to manage the fever, not to make it go away, but just to make, um, you know, our child's body or my body or my husband's body, um, you know, be able to handle it well so that it can use the fever to do what it's supposed to do with regards to, you know, what's happening in the body. So that's a very proactive approach that I think people need to really learn to do instead of saying, well, I'm going to go away I'm going to get sick and then they're going to reach for the NyQuil or the cold and flu medication or the Tylenol or the Motrin or whatever it is, as opposed to, you know what, anticipate that these things can happen. What are the natural things that you need to have in your kit? So I love that you said that. So I just want to touch on that. But going back to these narratives that are happening around COVID as well, um, the fear around this is, you know, you touched on that. And what's happening is that, you know, we have this mass oppression happening around COVID where, you know, here we have everything that happened with George Floyd and what that has resurrected and which is so important. And we're going to get into that in a bit, but that's about liberating people from oppression, suppression, repression. And here we have this mass oppression happening around, you know, waiting for that knight in shining armor to show up to find the cure for this virus. And so what do we do with this? Like it's, it's crazy what's happening at this exact moment in history where we have these two things happening where we're trying to liberate, but then meanwhile being suppressed entirely. And so let's chat about that a little bit more. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, on the surface, it's like, it's some things are glaring. It's like that we're silencing so many doctors, like so many doctors have come forward that are questioning how we're handling this, like, and doctors without agendas, you know, like, and we're, we're silencing them either because we're not putting their voices on the media or we're actually censoring them and deleting them from the media. So there's only one allowable narrative right now. And we're, we're using celebrities to tell us how to behave, which is, you know, that we've, gone into dark territory when we're silencing doctors and scientists and elevating celebrities to speak. So that's one thing. Um, And yeah, it just, okay. So, so getting into the current state of, you know, looking at race and, um, you know, racism and all those things, it's like, one of the things that is so interesting is that on one hand, yes. Okay. So we, when we look at race and racism, it's like, we can say that race doesn't really exist, right? Like there's different ethnicities. We're all 
of the human race. So we are all born vibrating beings equal on this planet, which we are not, right? Like you can say that we're spiritual beings having a human experience, but certain people are having a very racialized experience, which is very different from other people, right? And so with this recent killing of George Floyd, there's been this whole new revival and awakening and awareness. So for eons, people of color, indigenous people have been fighting for civil rights and liberties and, you know, to be, you know, all of the things. And then all of a sudden now there's this new wave of awareness from the more white population about these things, right? So that's beautiful, right? There's been a lot of awareness. There's been a lot of controversy even amongst that because there's a whole other political narrative going on as well. But just even if we're going to take something away from this, I think you know, there's always like, so when this happens, people want to bring in diversity. So it's like they want to bring in people of color into their ad campaigns. They want to give them a seat at the table, which I personally do not want to be at the table. Mm-hmm. And there, there's this need to kind of like diversify the look of things, right? Or, you know, we even have philanthropists who can remain unnamed who are doing such good work on the planet and even to be giving scholarships to people of color to put them into great universities, which again is, I would, you could say is tokenism. You could Mm -hmm. say it's just like, you're putting them in your structure. And so true diversity, I would say, is a diversity of, of things like, you could even just put it in the education system. So we have a certain perspective on what education is and what is knowledge right and that's based on this you know sort of standardized education system that we have right now but we we discredit and we don't acknowledge like the wealth of knowledge that exists in indigenous populations so and that's diversity diversified all around the planet of different Mm -hmm. knowledge it's like do you think that somebody who's gone to harvard and studied plants Um, knows more than an indigenous person who's been living in the Amazon for generation after generation and knows those plants on a like a visceral level and like not a book they didn't study it in book they've literally had their hands and they've been vibrating with these plants forever so like that's just two kinds of knowledge or even medicine like right now we're being corralled into one form of medicine that we all have to comply to when there's systems of medicine as diverse from Russia to South America to India to China, which are literally either suppressed, they're made illegal, we can't use them, they're, they're said to be quack medicine, and we actually, our, our, our choices are being limited about what medicines that we can use and what medicines are considered safe and effective. Um, you know, us having a foundation of health also is something that's going to prevent us getting a disease, spreading a disease. And they've actually said that those things don't have a place. So instead of just saying like, well, vitamin C doesn't cure COVID, it's like, it's like it doesn't have a place. But if you actually use all these different modalities and have a good immune system, then chances of you contracting or having a severe reaction to any virus is going to be limited. So but they even- have a place. Exactly. But even just, you know, touching on vitamin C here is, you know, I mean, there was that division basically of art and science or indigenous ways of knowing and 
and then what came to be known as the scientific method. And this mass division that almost said that, well, knowledge doesn't exist until it's been scientifically studied. But then it's also, we have to think about, well, who's designing the study? And how are they carrying that out? So let's talk about vitamin C. When you look at the studies around vitamin C, I mean, there's a hundred thousand ways that you can conduct a study around vitamin C. But then all of a sudden, you know, when someone says, well, vitamin C isn't effective, you know, and the rest of the population says, well, vitamin C isn't effective because the scientists said that it's not effective, but nobody wants to look at how the study's designed. Um, and then you realize, well, they were using like you know, what kind of vitamin C were they using and what were they not using, but also how much were they using and what form of it? Was it, you know, synthetic form? Was it, you know, just somebody eating a bunch of oranges or, you know, like that's the thing is that for anybody who's listening to this, where the first thought that comes into your mind is, well, if there's not a scientific study done on it, then it can't be knowledge versus well, what about, like you said, all of those other ways of knowing or other ways of um, studying or other ways of um, holding knowledge and attaining knowledge? Um, you know, that is, that is also valid. And I love the point that you brought up about, you know, tokenism versus, you know, what does it look like to truly be a, a diverse, caring, spiritual, accepting um, and maybe accepting is not even a good word, but, um, or I don't even know what words to use in this day and age right now. Inclusive, I don't think that's the word to use either. Um, but, you know, how do we move forward in the future where we are literally one race made up of many cultures and ethnicities that are all valid and right and just and, and you know, we can truly embrace that. And so... I mean, there's so many areas that we can discuss here, but I do want to go back to how, you know, when we chatted the other day and one of the reasons why I said like, oh my God, we have to talk about, like, have you on the podcast talking about that is because one of the, we have to tell your story and my story in context because you are half Jamaican and you are also half white, right? Your mother's mm -hmm. white. Um, what's her, what's her ethnicity, your mom? Um, Scottish, Dutch, German. And your, and your dad is Jamaican. Jamaican. Right. Yeah. And so I have the opposite. So where my mom is half black, half Indian. So born in Malawi. And then my, you know, grandfather's from Pakistan, but my dad is Austrian, you know, through and through Austrian blood, white, blonde hair, blue eyed. So we're just the reverse. And so we talked a little bit about that when we were at the farmer's market, you know, what was that like growing up um, mixed race, you know, being half black, half white and your mom actually, cause she was at the farmer's market. She, I love the question that she posed to you while you were growing up was just to ask you like, what is it like being you? growing up in this society. So I want to touch on that because I want people to dive into what that looks like. And then I want to touch more on to, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and talking about, you know, how can we move forward, you know, in our society and with others around this. Okay. So, um, yeah, I don't want to forget because, yeah, coming back to now and to be able to, because of, I just wanted, so we don't forget, but just the mm -hmm. controversy right now about whether, this whole race thing is a relevant conversation or whether it's a big distraction because there's so many narratives about this mm -hmm. and about black lives matter and the source of their funding and yada 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 but i honestly think it's like to heal we need to acknowledge trauma 
And so clearly there's a massive portion of the population that's in pain. And until we acknowledge that pain, and that doesn't mean that there, we have to get into this victimhood or blame or mm. the whole song and dance or that someone's right or someone's wrong, but we need to acknowledge what's been done to people, mm. right? And people have to feel that. And that's not just like a once overnight thing. And so it's a process and it's going to take time. Um, but my experience, it was funny because I don't remember my mom posing that question, but she had said that when she asked me what it was like, I said, I feel like I'm white with black relatives, I think is what she said that I said. And it's funny because growing up in a pretty um, white environment, like I remember in my elementary school, the first school I went to, there was a couple black kids kind of, I think, you know, and then I ended up going to French schools mostly. So at one French school, it was quite international, actually, like there was Iranian kids, Armenian kids, Pakistani kids, French kids. Um, and so that was cool because I was kind of exposed to different people. So it was like, I was different, but there was other different people. And then for several years, I was at a very Jewish school. And then I was at a very, very white, like girls private school. Okay, so I kind of went through a different spectrum of things. But from the beginning, first of all, I grew up in the 70s where my name is Sarinda. Everybody had rulers and pencils with their names on them, like Karen and Christine and Jennifer. And I never had a ruler no, with exactly. my name on it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I was surrounded, I would always look at these girls that were like, you know, blonde and blue eyed and, you know, just that all American kind of look. And that was, was presented in media. And so I always kind of felt like that was the norm that I was supposed to fit into. Right. And I just wasn't quite right. Like my hair was kind of kinky and I, my nose was so different. And so I, I kind of was always like trying to, that, that was the thing that I was kind of aspiring isn't the right word, but that's what I thought I was, I, I didn't fit into that. And it wasn't until, I don't know if it was like the, the late eighties or early nineties where you started to see black models like Naomi mm -hmm. Campbell and Iman. And one of my friends from high school, her sister was one of those models. Um, she was Jamaican. And so it wasn't until then, like, you know, so into well into my teens that I started to see somebody who kind of looked like me, like I was like, I was still somewhere in the middle, but I was like, okay, like they've got more of the features that I have. And so it was kind of like, that was like affirming to some degree, but there was kind of this constant feeling of like, no matter where I was, I was like the other kid. When I was in a French school, I was the English kid. When I was in the Jewish kid, I was like the not Jewish kid. And then when I was in this very waspy white environment, like I wasn't that either. And, you know, just be like, you know, by virtue of the fact that, you know, my dad was a judge, I was kind of like accepted into this privileged sort of world, but I never felt like that was my world. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of like, that's not, that's not me, you know? And, and so there was always like this feeling of like, I don't really belong in any of these places, nor do I like there was, I think probably a period where I wanted to be part of that reality to some degree to fit in. Cause I think that's just human nature to want to fit in to the point where I was like, I don't like this world. Like I don't like, um, 
this feeling i what i think that privilege and wealth does to people is it insulates people from the reality of the world mm -hmm. and so i always felt so much more at ease like when i was traveling and i was like in a third world country and i was like oh this is people like this is how people yeah. live like they're rooted they they do real things and they have real life and real problems and they're not just living in these big homes insulated from reality and it was like that I, I wanted to be so far away from that reality that because it just never felt right to me. And then, and I see how that is going on now. Like that's that idea of like people coming up to me that have known me forever and have been completely oblivious to there's this thing of privilege yeah. or white privilege. And I hate all those terms because I feel it's so reductive and it's like, there's so much like, attached to them but it's kind of like this sense of people not realizing that we have a dominant culture that the rest of us fit into but and this is like the way even just the language that you're using now i know is brand new for a lot of people where they would you know you would say power over for example or privilege and they're like well what are you talking about but they don't see it because of the fact that they've just lived their whole entire lives in that place and so for them that unless you have something to compare it to then you you can't see that that it's even there or that it's happening or anything like that and without being exposed to i still meet people today that you know i'll talk about residential schools and they'll be like what's the bit what's a residential school like they don't know anything about canadian you know first nations history and indigenous history and you know they they'll make comments like well that happened so long ago what's the big deal why can't they just get over it you know and i hear comments like that but oh, yeah. you know but that was the thing that you know chatting with you in the farmers market it was like oh my god a relief that we can chat about you know use this language but actually actually truly know what it means and what it refers to so we have an issue with language in our society we have an issue an issue with lack of knowledge and history we have an issue with and, and i don't even know what the first step is to moving to a place where, because it's a journey, it's not that you can just force feed information to people in a class in university or in high school or in elementary school. It's a process of being able to hear it, have some exposure to it, start to taste it, sense it, smell it, and then it becomes you. And then all of a sudden your worldview starts to shift, right? It's not something that you can just you know, for example, have a black person on your podcast or your website. And all of a sudden it's like, well, now, you know, I'm not part of that, that old story no, and old narrative. It's just, it's so deep, right? It's so, so deep. deep. And I think I would even argue that so many people of color are only waking up to their, their history. Sorry. And I grew up to in a, um, you know, I grew up very much in, you know, in a school where it's predominantly like 99.9% all Caucasian students. There was one Chinese kid. His name was Man. There was myself. I was the, you know, basically the token black kid. You know, people used to, you know, I'd be walking down the street and somebody would yell out the street and be like, hey, Hindu. And I'd be like, are they talking to me? Because sometimes I'd even forget that I, you know, didn't have white skin. Um, and even now, like as all of this happened, one of the things you said at the market the other day, um, and that exactly the same thing happened to me is that, you know, when everything with George, George Floyd's murder 
happened. And then all of the social media um, that happened, but not one person called me or said to me like, Hey, Nikki, like, what is it like to be a black person? Which I thought that was interesting for your mom to have asked you that as a kid. Cause even my mom never asked me that, like, what is it to be you, Nikki, you know, growing up in an all white neighborhood and an all white school and all white society. Um, and I was never really asked that, but then what I realized is one of the reasons why I wasn't asked that by my friends is because they actually only just realized I was black and Indian. They were just like, we kind of thought you're white but just with dark skin. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's interesting because like I heard a woman saying how it's like, as a person of color, you spend your whole life learning how to be white basically, Mm -hmm. but it's not a reverse thing. Like unless you're a white person living in Africa, you don't really need to understand the culture. You are the culture. And we've spread the culture around the world. That's called colonialism because we've gone and we've, you know, carved up Africa we've you know we've kind of extracted from cultures all around the world and we've kind of spread this narrative of white culture and so for all of us it seems normal and most people you know don't understand history and not that I mean we none of us know the history right because the history was written by the people who won right and so you know we have an idea that you know, all Blacks came over on slave ships, but there were Black people in the Americas. So, you know, and we, we, we have this idea that Blacks were slaves as if they had no other identity, as opposed to kings and queens in Africa who had advanced knowledge, or that even that there were civilizations before our civilization that was far more advanced than what we are right now. Yeah. And we think that we're like at the pinnacle of of evolution right now and we've got the sickest people living on the planet we've got the highest suicide rates we have most people medicating just to be alive on the planet right now Mm. either for emotional issues or physical issues and we think that this is advanced civilization and that the people running the show like as if the you know the highest office in north america is like the person who's the leader of the planet basically and like that's supposed to be representative of like mass uh, like enlightenment and and technological advance or something and it's kind of like we and i think it i mean it all comes down to i mean i love the the idea that you know that the apocalypse is the lifting of the veil and i think that we are kind of just been pushed into this mass awakening right now, which is so destabilizing and so confusing because everything's coming up and everyone's trying to grab onto a narrative and figure out what's going on. But I really do think that it comes down to personal responsibility and personal healing. So it's like, until you can kind of step back and go, okay, like, who am I in this whole mix? Like, where did I come from? Who are my parents? What was my history? what do I believe to be true on the planet right now? What am I basing my knowledge on? Like, you know, just trying to make sense of it. And I think if you've never done that or never kind of had a, you know, dark night of the soul where you've actually considered anything, then that can be really kind of destabilizing. But, you know, I don't think we're going to move forward until we can see the interconnectivity of all things. And even to the fact that you know, we were kind of just looking at like, oh, we've been oppressing these black people and we should treat them better. Or, but it's like, extend that out of Canada, out of United States, like to 
what's going on in Africa? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we see people that are warring tribes in Africa, but why are, like, who gave them the guns and why are they fighting? And while they're fighting, are we stealing their resources? You know, like, where do our cell phones come from? Like, we've, we've been able to insulate ourselves from the suffering of everybody else on the planet. And I think that is a major disease. And if you look at the, 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 like, I don't see like the, you know, like this idea like of white supremacy or like a superior class or privilege, I think is really, even those words are crazy because I don't see those people as privileged or best, right? Like exactly. there's trauma in that existence. It's like, not like there's somebody winning in this. Like we're all kind of screwed right now because the planet is suffering and we're the ones that will go down, all of us as a collective. It's not like white people or black people or that any of this is going to pick a color, right? No. So when you look at the levels of anxiety and stress in the dominant culture, that isn't indicative of disease, right? And that's indicative of the fact that we've off, you know, we've, we've put the pain over there on other people and thinking that it doesn't affect us when it affects all of us, like not Mm -hmm. one thing is not connected in this. And so I think, you know, hopefully the longer this goes on, we can start to see what, how we've set up the planet and how like, even the notion of the fact that, you know, we're trying to protect something that we have over here, like that we're going to fight other people on the other side of the planet to protect what we have. Like there's such an excess on the planet Mm -hmm. that it's even such a crazy notion that we're fighting other people so that we can be better off. Like, how does that even make sense? And how do we even, like, where do we draw those lines? Like, where do we decide that those people's lives are worth less than our lives over here in the West? Like, how can we go, those people, or their way of life is a threat to our way of life, and we don't agree with it, so we're going to squash them. Well, I think you touched on it with, you know, you had mentioned about, you know, questioning, like, how do I know what I know, or, you know, where I come from, or just even looking back in our own histories and understanding our own histories, I think allows us to, because there's been oppression and suppression um, and repression all throughout every culture, right? Every gender, every, you know, every animal species on the planet at some point, every, you know, piece of nature has experienced that and um to understand your own culture and question yourself and where you where what you've come to know and i think a really easy way to do that is um and i often had to do this when i was in university in mississippi uh people often say like what brought you to mississippi and i was like well you know i went to play tennis and it had a good business school and you know i could have gone to the university of hawaii or university of illinois and i ended up going to you know mississippi and and it was the best experience because I got to see complete segregation. I got to be in the Bible Belt of the United States where it's, you know, again, like you could be talking about race, but like, let's just talk about religion, like where it's like the Methodist and the Protestants and the Baptist and the Anglicans, like everybody's at war with each other and everybody feels like, well, no, my religion is better. And, but I would always end up in these conversations because, you know, white people would be talking about the black people in some of the most craziest racist ways. And the black people would be talking about the white people exactly the same way. 
way. And because nobody knew if I was black or white coming or going, they just would tell me everything. So I got to get filled up on all sides and really got to see the intense segregation right down to the cafeteria. You'd go in there and the left side would be all the black people and the right side would be all the white people. And I'd be like, I don't know where to sit. Um, and, but, you know, being in these conversations, it was amazing because I got to be, it was literally like being a fly on the wall. And the question I would always ask was, well, how did you come to know that? You know, like one woman, one girl on my tennis team would talk about how her granddaddy had all these slaves and they loved being called the N-word. And I was like, really? <laughs> How did, how did they love to be called? Like, how did you know that? Like, really, who told you that? Well, my grandfather told me that. Well, who told him that? Well, you know, and then you can keep asking yourself that question or about religion, you know, where it's, you know, unless you accept yourself as, um, I'm not religious, so I'm probably going to get this wrong, but accept yourself as, you know, one of God's saviors, I think, then, you know, if you don't do that, then you're going to hell. And I would say, well, how do you know that? Well, because it just is. Well, no, no, no. Somebody must have, you know, taught you that. Who taught you that? Well, my grandparents and my, you know, great grandparents and my Baptist minister and, you know, my church community. And okay, well, how did they come to know that? And then there you come to a place where it's like, oh, I actually don't know how they came to know that. So then where are you getting your actual true real knowledge from? Is it just because somebody said that that's the way it is? So I think that, you know, part of that healing process is potentially going back and keep asking until you hit that wall. And then once you hit that wall, that's when you get to actually truly start digging and come up with a, you know, a foundation or a system or a place where that knowledge came from. And you start to see things like you said, that actually there were black queens and kings and emperors and rulers, or that even in India, women were the superior gender and they were the rulers in India at one point until there was, you know, colonization came through and there was, you know, wars and then all of a sudden the women were suppressed and then all of a sudden it was mm -hmm. the men who understand all these things, right? And there's been so many, like, so many different iterations of things, right? Even... Like even right now, this idea of, you know, people will argue that at a certain point, there was just different ethnicities around their planet. There wasn't this whole idea of like one being superior to another, like maybe they were a threat because you wanted what they had or whatever it was, they had land. But, you know, even in the States, people will argue that, you know, back in the day, there was like privileged white people, but there was also poor white people who had a lot in common with poor black people. And so those people were a strong force together. But once you start giving some privileges, a few more privileges to the white people and then create more privilege for them, then you can separate them from the black people and create this animosity between the two groups so that you've got more leveraging power, right? So it's like we give little, you know, special prizes to, you know, those maybe poor white people so that they become, you know, the white privilege in a way, right? And so it's like, you know, just looking at the fact that we have all these social constructs set up. And it's not to say that you can't break through, but you can break through into the dominant narrative, right? So mm -hmm. of course you have wealthy Black people and people of color, but they're operating in that dominant narrative, right? And, you know, so it's like, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's interesting right now. And I think it's like, there's, so people have to, I mean, ultimately, I do think there's kind of like one truth, you know, which is like deeper. I mean, it's beyond all these conversations in a way. And it's like, 
you know, if you even drill it back to our biology, it's like, I think of our bodies as like these ecosystems, right? So it's like, you've got this ecosystem of like bacteria and viruses and fungi and all the things that make us up. And, you know, we're literally made out of like stardust. If you want to bring it down to that, like, what are we? We're not even like this, all of this idea of like division and race and privilege and importance and, you know, wealth and all of these things are just, they're constructs that we've created. And so, you know, we're, we're all just living in this story. And I think we're at this time where there's like a crack in the fabric of the story and we've got to decide what's the new story that we want to be living in. And, you know, for some people, it's going to be looking at, you know, maybe the absurdity of the story and how that they're, you know, they're playing a part in a suppressive role on the planet. And, you know, maybe they didn't sign up for that and maybe they didn't knowingly sign up for that, but that's the way it's been rigged, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's I, I think it's challenging right now because there's so much noise out there. And once again, people are looking outwardly to find a f- affirmation for some kind of hold on reality right now because it's super confusing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think everybody's kind of kind of got to step back and look at, at what's going on and you know sort of come back to themselves a little bit to sort of break that down and unfortunately not everybody's you know i i remember kristen campbell said to me once she's like not everyone's a seeker no right so no. as much as we want everybody to have an awakening right now and to see what's up and to break this down and to you know to move forward in a bigger way most people are not having these conversations. So for moving forward then, I mean, what are some of the things that you feel is important that, that, you know, we do either within our own families or within our communities or for the people who are the seekers, you know, what is it, what are the next step, you know, for them? Cause obviously we've seen like the immediate response was, okay, let's go on social media and put up a black, you know, image. And then that's it. And, you know, a lot of people will think like, well, I've done my part. I didn't post on social media for a week. And, you know, they copied and pasted, you know, these um, social media posts, but like, there's a lot, there's a lot more that needs to be done. Obviously. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, Jen, like, I think there's a lot of people that are genuinely moving, like leaning into this in a positive way. Right. And I, you know, that's a beautiful thing. That's all you can ask for. And I do feel like it's kind of created this in, you know, black indigenous people of color. Like it's kind of created a new sense of like, like we're not going to stand for this anymore. There's Mm -hmm. a little bit of like enough is enough. And you know, whether people will argue that this is all politically motivated and a big distraction and intellection year and yada, yada, yada. I do think it's kind of created this resilience in people and it's given people that have been marginalized um, a voice right now. You know, more people are kind of going, oh, we've been living like this. This is absurd, you know? And so I do think that there's been a shift and, you know, in that, and that's super important. Um, you know, and I think that's one piece of it. I think, you know, I don't know how much people have shifted their perspective on health mm-hmm. in all of this. Like, I don't, I don't know whether it's kind of made people go, oh, like, how resilient am I if something comes around? And what are my perceptions around health and how I can be healthy? And, 
you know, am I waiting for the government to take care of me? Or, you know, I, I see a lot of people still living in fear, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know if a lot of, like, I, I feel like my friends that are, are conscious that already are conscious of it, but I don't, I haven't seen that many people moving to the other side, but I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, it's hard to say. I, I feel like, again, there, it's, we, we always center ourselves in this conversation as if, well, one, that we are going to make, we're, we're going to change things. And I do feel like there, there's more to it, right? Like we, we always forget that the plants have their own existence and the animals have their own existence. And, you know, plants are resilient to change and to, you know, to climate change, which is inevitable, whether we're here or not, there will be changes. And, you know, there's, there's an intelligence and all these other things. And even if you, I always think of like, you know, like the, like the bacteria and all of the things in our body, it's basically life animating itself through us. And so whatever you feed and nourish is what you're cultivating in yourself. And so that's the resilience that you're going to develop. And that's kind of the, you know, the expression of life that's coming through you, right? And you can either harness that or you can block it or you can suppress it and you can create disease or all of the things. But I just think that there's like an intelligence that's moving through the planet as well that's going to wake us up, right? And so if you are, you know, in line with that, then maybe it'll help you, you know, it'll help you cultivate resilience and to thrive through these times. And if you're not in alignment, maybe it's going to rock you the other way. And, you know, it's like a meteor could take us out, a tsunami could take us out, like, and at the same time as the weather could take us out, our governments are manipulating the weather. So it's like, we're manipulating the weather. We're we're manipulating our own genetic makeup and our own DNA through our food and through pharmaceuticals. And so I, I'm always positive and optimistic about things. I just feel like um, there's something greater at play that we don't know of. And I don't think that that's a a bad thing. I, Mm. I, I tend to be more optimistic about things and I think that's like we I I love the the idea that we um that like we are you know there's that saying of like we're the daughters of the witches that they didn't burn we are the seeds of our ancestors that survived like we innately are survivors we come from a race or we come from a lineage of people that survived and if you think about the fact that slavery went on for over 400 years think about 400 years like this is just recent history. Like we're not even talking about things that, that have gone on in the past, but just like even more, you know, recent Western history of like 400 years that people got up every morning and continued to live and to love and to have children and to mm-hmm. make food and to, to, to deal. And like, look at the glory that we're living in right now. We're not even having to deal with that, you know? And it seems like that we're at this really intense time in history, which it is, but think about the lives that people lived and are still mm-hmm. living in different corners of the planet right now, you know? And it's like, so, I mean, I love that idea, you know, and I think of Journey's movie always of like hope, right? It's like yeah. people have always had hope and that's what humans have. And that's what, you know, makes us persistent, you know, and resist and continue to move forward when get up every day. Um, and so I, I just, 
So that's one question that I want to ask you then, because I love that you brought up, um, just for your people who don't know what Surinder was talking about, there's a wonderful, beautiful, incredibly intelligent, lovely human that um, uh, graduated from the Waldorf School in Whistler, and she created, her name's Journey, and she created this beautiful documentary called Hope. And we'll put the link below in the show notes so everybody can watch that. But the question I have for you, Surinder, is what do you hope comes out of, you know, George Floyd's death and for, you know, even just people in our community here in Whistler, which is a pretty, like one of the most privileged communities on the planet and is also one of the most homogeneous communities on the planet Mm -hmm. as well. So what is, you know, the hope that you have, you know, coming out of George Floyd's death and, and this, and Black Lives Matters movement? Um. Well, from what I've observed in like, you know, some of my community is that people are, you know, genuinely awakening to this conversation about, you know, different peoples that have been suppressed and kind of the reality of our culture. Um, You know, some people, I think it's very authentic. And even though, you know, like they've posted for a few weeks or whatever, like I do feel like people are open to it and that people, you know, I've seen, observed that people are genuinely invested in that. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, I see also as well in my circle and peripherally in my circle, people that are very, um, uh, you know, caught up in a certain narrative right now of like conspiracies that are going on. And not that I'm against a lot of that narrative, but like there's a, you know, strong narrative going on that this is all a big distraction. Um, and that, you know, a lot of this is either politically motivated or, I mean, even people will say that the environmental movement is, you know, is kind of has a, a greenwashing agenda to it and that there's, you know, more corporate interest behind it than we would like to think. And I don't disagree with that, but that doesn't change the fact that we need to do better mm-hmm. on the planet. And although, there may be some nefarious motivations behind the latest political, I mean, racial drama that's going on, especially in the United States. And that, you know, there's people that have infiltrated movements, people infiltrated the Black Panther movement. So whether people are infiltrating Black Lives Matter right now does not discredit the fact that there's serious injustice going on. There's serious problems with maternal health rates, with maternal death rates in you know, indigenous community. There's people in our country in the United States who do not have clean drinking water. There's people that are being brutalized by police in our country across from coast to coast. And that's been going on since slavery in our country. So there's problems. And I don't think you can, you can deny that. And whether there's some, you know, political agenda or distraction going on right now, I don't think that we can, until we all heal we can't really move forward or at least until we acknowledge trauma and if you understand trauma and understand that it is intergenerational and for Mm -hmm. those people who are like why don't they just get move on with it that happened so long ago mentality it's like it's in people's dna you know like if you're a woman and you see a rape scene i don't know any woman who's not triggered by that because it's literally in your dna because you feel that because women throughout history have been violated yeah. And if and you are a black it, person and you see a black person being lynched, it's visceral. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, and I can, I've, I've seen like a glimpse of how, you know, a white person may look at that and be able to sort of be distanced from it. But literally, like, I feel that to my core, you know, but and it's it, like, 
And on the other side, though, if you have grown up, you know, this is where racism is also in our DNA and it is intergenerational. And I know that from being in Mississippi and seeing some of my tennis mates and, you know, my roommates like go off to KKK rallies in Mississippi and they literally went feeling like it was their call of duty to participate in that KKK rally. And they didn't even think anything of it, despite the fact that, you know, they're friends with me, like a, a black Indian person, but they literally was like, it was so in their DNA that it was okay to, you know, hate black people. And so it goes both ways, right? Where, but we can also, we need to change that. And it does have to change because we have to make it, become a visceral experience that that is not okay. And it's only going to happen through, you know, telling stories, changing the narrative, giving birth to children where their new narrative is that it's not okay to rape and beat women. It's not okay to rape and pillage the planet and all of its resources. It's not okay to hate people because of the color of their skin. Um, You know, all of that, like that is ultimately what needs to change. And it starts with the stories that we start telling ourselves today. Yeah, and I mean, uh, one note on the KKK thing is, I don't know if you saw, like, there was a, a gentleman, a Black Amer- African-American man on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he, his big story is how many KKK people he's converted. Yes, and there's a beautiful documentary on that. I'm going to have to find the name of Isn't it. Isn't it great? So did, you just see amazing. how people, literally, they have things in their mind that don't make sense. And when you question them, it they they realize, right? So it's like, there's that. Um. But yeah, that idea of kind of just change, like just changing people's way of perceiving and thinking. And the media is unbelievable, like how much, and if people even remotely understood how much they're being, you know, kind of like there's a a documentary, it's an actually, it's a BBC documentary called The Century of the Self. And it's basically like post-World War II, how the American culture was basically engineered, like just culture in itself. And so I don't know if it was the, if it was like Freud's nephew or something, I can't remember. Anyways, it's called the century of the self. And so even down to the new age movement and to all of this like self, self kind of absorption of whether it's you sitting on your yoga mat or whether it's you, you know, trying to become a billionaire, it's just like all of our our narrative has been constructed. And so, you know, for people to slowly, and like, if you just go through Netflix right now, it is shocking the things that are on there, whether it's, you know, show movies about um, pandemics Mm -hmm. and contagion and, you know, all of that to like politics, to philanthropists, to people watch that. And they're like, well, those people must be good, or this must be good, or this is what's happening, or this is the way life is. Or, you know, even just, even if you want to even go, like, how are people educated about sexuality? Mm-hmm. Like through media, through porn? Like, how do you, how as a woman, do you relate to sexuality or like what it is to have a relationship or what? sex is like right like are you educated through like a yogic or eastern philosophy way where there's like you're these two energetic beings or do you watch it from like how you see like this idea of like a prince saving you and 
you know, for all the Disney, the Disney guys stories. pleasure or like, what is it? Right. Like how do these, these things shape us? And most people living on the planet right now are shaped through media. Yeah. Right. And pop culture and pop culture is constructed. You know, that's like the media. There's like six people that are organizations that own all of the media on the planet. All the magazines, all the newspapers, all the news channels. And so people think that they're getting different sources of information, but even down to like Vice, which some people think is like alternative, that's still owned by the same company. So, you know, people, I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things, I mean, with social media and, and things is that there is, if you are somebody who's looking for more diversified information, you can find it as much as all of those channels are being censored right now. But even but, like even on that note, it's interesting because most of our audience, you know, even though our podcast has been listened to, you know, by people in like eighty-seven plus different countries, um, the predominant, like the majority of the listeners are from the United States. But here I am with a podcast coming out of Canada, and one example I just want to like really give people an example of what you're talking about is that. I was teaching in New York just before COVID. Um, I was teaching a group of healthcare practitioners all about how to use food as medicine. And we talked about Monsanto and we talked about genetically modified food and we talked about pesticides. And I couldn't believe it when like nine out of 10 of the participants, so 90% of the participants in the United States, they were all American citizens, had never heard of Monsanto in 2020. Oh, and I, uh, and, and I was, and, and of course I'm like, I shouldn't be surprised, but at the same time, it was uh, like, I was so shocked by that. And, there, and I'm like, on the news, you're not like seeing all the case reports. You haven't heard all the, but it's not. But portrayed. it's not though. It's not. And so we're get everybody, depending on what region you are, what state you are, what country you are, you're going to be fed different information and, you know, in the media, but not only that, if you go to do a Google search, Unless you actually go into the Google of a particular country, you're not going to get a different perspective. You'll, when you search Google, you're searching Google in your own country. You're not. And gonna now they've they've also they've changed like they've they're they've co-opted the algorithm. So it's like you can search certain people, and then the only thing their website won't come up. It'll just come up that there are like some an article that's written about them that they're a quack. Yes. So it's not even like you could be looking for somebody and you'd think that their website would come up as one of the first things. It's not even there. It'll just come up, all these articles discrediting them. Exactly. Right? So it's and like you need to go to independent search engines. And then, yeah. I mean, I mean, and that I've listened to somebody who, who worked in the military and he did say like one of the biggest, um, you know, kind of like wars or attacks on people right now is the fact that everything that they're searching and viewing is coming to them. Um, it's being filtered to them, right? And so, you know, they've, we've seen that with the elections and with Cambridge Analytica, but that's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on right now. And so, you know, unless you specifically know the person that you're following or like even a whole, I mean, and people have said that like things like, you know, there's been Black Lives um, protests that have been organized that weren't even really Black Lives Matter people organizing them, for instance, and that's happened in the past, right? So like, you know, somebody can start sharing something or posting something that, and you're following it, thinking it's, it's real, and you have no, like, we have no idea anymore, which is, again, 
why it comes back to the individual and it comes back to you kind of grounding your life into something that's real right and we like at the end of the day i mean i just feel like it's like you need to be rooted to the land somewhere you Mm -hmm. need to be rooted to your food source you need to know where your food's coming from you need to know your neighbors you need to know your community you know you need to know people in real life and not virtual like people are living in a virtual reality and they're even basing their existence off of a virtual model of what's attractive or what's important or what's valued or which is why it is that covid is you know really happened at almost like such the right time like we needed it almost more than ever and this does not i'm not saying this to you know poke the wounds of people who've lost their family members um, during this whole COVID pandemic. But just to say that, you know, this almost brings this whole entire interview with you full circle, because at the very beginning, you touched on the fact that it was your intuition. It was you sort of centering in your own body to understand what kind of foods were right for you by not listening to what the rest of the world were saying was the right food to eat, like the McDonald's and the processed food and refined food and the gluten food, but to actually figure out what is right for you. And COVID has forced people to stay on their land, you know, or in their apartment or in their homes. Um, and get connected with their families again, to get to know each other. It slowed us down. It's allowed us to, you know, be able to sometimes even for, I hope a lot of people think for themselves in a way, because I know a lot of people got overwhelmed by the media. So they just turned it off. And then that forces you to have to start coming up with ideas on your own. And which is exactly what you did, you know, at the beginning of your you know, journey into healing and wellness and health and connection and and then recognizing the interconnectivity of everything. And so it almost, you know, it's something that I'm hoping for a lot of people out there that that's what it's, it's caused them to do because, Mm -hmm. you know, we do need to come back to that place, right. Where we start to, you know, question why we know what we know and to try and understand what truth is right for us. Cause there's so many different truths out there. Right, exactly. And, and that's not a bad thing, right? It's like, there's this idea that we all have to agree and be on the same page. And I don't mm-hmm. think it's that either, right? Like, it's not like we all have to love each other and accept each other. Like, we cannot like each other or disagree with people, but we can also give each other space. There's space for everybody, right? It's like, mm-hmm. we can let people live the way they want to live as long as they're not harming other, other people. And obviously, that's a grander issue. And that gets into interpretation. But just, you know, I think, I, I, I really hope that, you know, I think this is such a beautiful opportunity and I hope it's not lost. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, for some people, it's like they're going to realize, you know, where they are in their lives and what, what's important to them. And maybe some people will realize that, like, they love being at home with their kids. Maybe they're going to realize that their kids have thrived and that they want to homeschool their kids. Or maybe mm-hmm. they'll realize that their kid had so much anxiety because they were so unhappy at school, you know, and or maybe the opposite. Maybe some people's kids thrive on being social and this whole isolation thing has been really traumatic for them. 
Yeah, eventually it validated what people's intuitions were already saying because we, again, hear that like, oh, I wish I could homeschool, but I can't because I should send my kids to school or, you know, or whatever it is. It could be around food. It could be around your marriage. It could be around your career. Like, you know, I really want to be an entrepreneur, but, you know, I have a really good job, so I should just keep my job as opposed to hopefully COVID, you know, allow them to really get in touch with what is true to them. Yeah. And the pace of life too. It's just like, I mean, my nervous system was just like dying to slow down and not race out of the house every morning and get on the highway and then rush, rush, rush and go everywhere and try and do everything and then get up and do it all over again. And it's just like, why, why do we operate at this, at this pace? Like Mm -hmm. what, who, who, it's kind of like, I love that idea of like, whoever owns your time owns you, right? And mm-hmm. it's just like, none of us own our time for the most part. Like we all aspire to this life where we kind of can live on our own terms and our own schedule. But we're, even if you have that kind of carved out in your own personal career, like the society, you know, urges you to go at a different pace. Because if it's not just you, it's your kids that are into it or, totally. you know, whatever it is, like we're kind of operating. And I, I I saw this beautiful quote that this woman made. It was just kind of like, our, our, we're, we're experiencing so much anxiety because it's like we're operating at a pace that is not remotely close to the pace of nature or yeah. like the natural rhythms of things. And I mean, you can even go into women's health with that. It's just like we've, we've you know, we've, we kind of have controlled women's reproductive systems. We've controlled their menstrual cycles. You know, we can you know, plug and go and just like keep going on and doing all the things. And we don't, and I mean, I think that is something that's even happened before this. And you see that there's kind of like this reconnections with, with people's moon cycles and, Mm -hmm. you know, even workplaces that are being more, um, you know, allowing and open to women kind of working with their cycles and there's more awareness about all these things. So I do think that there's like a beautiful shift that's happening in, you know, collectively and as a culture and, you know, the fact that we are so interconnected right now is amazing. And I even was listening to this man who he spent several decades um, living in the jungle with the um, indigenous tribes, and he's lived through two or three pandemics and um, worked with the plant Artemisia to help um, cure um, pandemics in those areas. But just at the beginning of COVID in the, the Brazilian government, they wanted to go into this untouched tribe and which is like the worst thing right for missionary groups to go in and bring disease especially at the beginning of a pandemic and so there was very little little media coverage of this and there was a like a a legal battle to prevent this particular group from going in and the only reason that they won was because the judge who was presiding went onto social media and saw that there was all these people in support of this tribe and this not happening And so the judge decided to like, he started seeing all of this conversation, which was happening in the fringes, not on media. And he saw that this was happening. And so he, he educated himself and then he decided to block these people having access to this tribe, you know? So there is a beautiful thing happening in our connectivity. And it's not like there's all these evil dark forces everywhere. There are definitely, they exist, but a lot of it's just based on ignorance and lack of knowing. Right. And so- you know, I just think that 
there there's kind of an awakening and an, an intelligence that's happening that's beyond us. And if you even think of the proliferations of mushrooms literally on the ground and into people's homes and into their bodies and into their medicine cabinets or kefir or kombucha, like there's like a living, living organisms that exist in nature that have woven themselves into our day-to-day -day culture. Like, yeah. you know, and so I think that that, that that will animate itself beyond people's mental cognitive ability to change things right now. And that there's just something that's happening that is beyond all of us, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think it's just like people have to align themselves. It's just like sit down and, you know, breathe and connect with what's real around you and tangible, whether it's your relationships or what you're eating or your environment where you live. And exactly. um, because this is literally embedded in all of our DNA. This is not mm -hmm. something that we have to seek out outwardly. We don't have to go to anybody if we haven't noticed that most of the gurus are getting torn off of their, their pedestals. And so we have to stop searching for people to tell us the answers that are literally inside of us. Which I think it's funny that you just said that because my next question, you know, to wrap up this show because we have shared so much information, like people are going to have to listen to this episode like 10 times over just to really touch on all the different um, topics, which are all interrelated. You can't speak about one without speaking about the other. We can't speak about race without speaking about COVID, without speaking about, you know, the environment and climate change and, um, you know, food, nutrition, everything, medicine, it's all connected. It's all one. But I was going to ask you, how do people learn from you so without seeking out the guru with trusting their own self <laughs> but at the same time we do have we are you're an educator i'm an educator and you know and people do also need seek, they need guidance right so right so at the same so, time i mean since this, this since this started i have been starting to work from home with people kind of just virtually um, in the time of COVID. And I love, I love connecting with people. Like I love inspiring people. I love elevating people with where they're at and, you know, just guiding people. Right. So right now, I mean, I do, I do work one-on-one -on -one with people. I do want to kind of evolve that into, to like some groups or programs, but, um, I'm always open to talking with people and connecting with people. And so, so how do people connect with you, Sarinda, so they can... Instagram is easy, and you can put that link. Um, I'm working on my website right now to revamp things, but you can, it's a touch point for sure. Um, and are you still teaching cooking courses? Not currently. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always open to doing that. I just haven't really been pursuing it, mostly because of circumstance and just other focuses. But yeah, I'm always, I love sharing food with people. I love um yeah just sharing wellness and just helping people at whatever phase they're at um i've been also uh working on my doula training and nice. so that's another passion place for me because i for me it was such a transform transformational process was giving birth and just motherhood so mm -hmm. i love connecting with people pre pre-pregnancy during pregnancy um after any stage of that and um, I'm also really passionate about like women that are coming into that phase of their life, like youth right now, 
I feel like there's such a beautiful generation that's coming up right now and they're so aware and I do feel like their access to intelligent information around their bodies and health is still kind of on the fringe, really. You have to seek it out. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really just like passionate about women like owning and reclaiming, which seems like so crazy in this day and age, but it's like, again, I think it comes back to our, our old trauma and our collective wounding. And again, it's such a huge thing to unpack. And even when you say the word patriarchy, I don't even think people can even understand how that's woven into us. No, exactly. we're all working on that clock and on that framework. It's just kind of like even our idea of leadership. It's like, why do we still have this like pinnacle male head at the top of it? It's like, what about a council of elders? Exactly. You know? Um, yeah, I really, I'm super passionate about this whole idea of just like regenerative agriculture, regenerative cultures, regenerative mm. healing, regenerative like correction, like justice systems and healing right it's just like even when we 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 other people like it's just like that person committed a crime like they're bad it's like you know when we when you look at restorative justice you go into why did they commit that crime what were the situation what was the ground like the you know the terrain for that to happen and so hopefully i think as a culture we can start digging into all these things of like why is any of this happening right it's Mm -hmm. like even people mention black on black crime it's like well, why is there black on black crime? Mm-hmm. You know, why are, why are people alcoholics? Why are they shooting themselves? It's not just that they're bad people. Yeah. And it's so reductive to leave it at that, right? And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm really, I love the idea of just like midwifing people or, or doulaing people into new ways of thinking and new ways of being and just to find themselves really, right? Just to like find the the truth of who we all are, which is all innate in all of us. And it's not something that you need a book for, or, I mean, obviously these are all tools and guides and super Mm -hmm. inspiring, but like for people to realize that it's like everything they have, they have within them. Yeah. And I love that you said that they don't need a book for it because I always, I really battle that when we put our, when I put my book out, I have to take full ownership for that. Uh, when I put my book out, because I was like, the world doesn't need one more book, but then yeah, now but it's, a, it's a, it's a way of, of it, it's a way of knowing connecting. and learning. And yes. the one where I've come around from that, because I was also going to say, just like hearing you speak, I was like, Oh, Sarinda, you need to write a book was of course the first thing that came to mind. But one thing that I've really come to, I've really switched my mindset on that is that storytelling, and I talk about this in every podcast, the reason we have this podcast is to share stories and it's stories inspire, stories heal, stories ignite curiosity. They, you know, guide people in a new direction. They clarify. There's so many things, but also by telling the story itself is also a healing process and understanding more about indigenous story work. I mean, oral history and is a traditional foundation in indigenous communities across for, for not just indigenous, indigenous, non-indigenous human for the entire human race. We have always mm-hmm. told stories. So when coming to accept that more, I have also come to accept that that's what a book is. A book is just a story. And so that's why it's okay to create them, even though thousands of books have been already made and are on the planet. So of it, course. They're really important. And so that's why I was I wanted to end with Sorinda, you need to write a book. And yeah. <laughs> you need to <laughs> teach more. Um yeah. and you know, and be available so that people can sit 
you know, with you in circle or, you know, maybe it's online or however it's going to be, whatever that looks like. And so that, you know, what you've come to know can also be passed on to, like you say, those inspiring, incredible younger female generations as well, not just female, male, but um, Mm -hmm. all genders really. Um, And so that that can be passed down. So it does become, you know, what you've come to know also becomes visceral and in the DNA of those of the future generations as well. Thank you. So I think this is a good place to wrap up. I mean, we could have gone on for hours and hours because there's so so much more um, that we could have dove into on a deeper level or even on a broader level as well. Um, but Sundar, I want to thank you for being here and sharing your insights um, with our audience. It, note that this is a very this covered a lot of heavy topics for people and, you know, lots of controversial ideas and topics um, that people are battling and dealing with right now. But hopefully that when people listen to this, there, you know, there's going to be little sparks that were ignited within them and that it encourage you in, that this podcast encourages you to get curious like Sorinda did in her for beginning of her healing journey and that you just follow that thread wherever it may lead you and just know that this is just part of your learning process as well to be inspired um, by the topics that have been brought up in today's show so that you can discover just even one more little tiny thing about yourself that will contribute to your healing process. So thanks Sorinda for being on the show. Thank you. And yeah, I just, I want people to stay open and kind to themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is like, this is not going to happen overnight for anyone. So I just think people need to just like be open, be kind to themselves and be patient and don't Mm -hmm. feel like you have to come to like conclusions or some kind of answer to any of this right now. I just think it's like, it is a big opening and it's a big opportunity. And so yeah, there's no, there's no hurry. Nature doesn't move that quickly and time doesn't move that quickly either. So it's like, there's no urgency in all this, even though it feels like there's such an urgency. Yeah, no, that's a brilliant point because I know a lot of people right now are feeling the urgency to learn everything about colonization or decolonizing our education systems, our medical systems, our political systems, like all those systems you talked about. And you can't learn it all in one night because it is hundreds of years of history that we need to understand and we need to go through the process of taking it in and then being moved by it, waking up to it, um, being changed by it. And that's not going to happen overnight. So yes, I agree. We have to be patient with ourselves in this journey. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. (laughs) So how did you enjoy that show? So just so you know, Sorinda and I actually kept talking for an hour longer. And what I realized is that we should have kept recording. In fact, we did, but I told our editor, Becky, to just cut it off at the two-hour mark. But we dove into so many other topics, so we are definitely going to have Sarinda back on the show so that we can dive into those topics in more detail. So thank you all for being here. It is so important that you take in these kinds of messages like we just talked about on this podcast and that we start educating collectively everyone around us. We start getting 
vulnerable with our ideas, our feelings, our emotions, our being around anti-racism, around Black Black Lives Matter, around what it means to be Indigenous. And we start having these conversations so that we can alleviate the walls that we have created. These are settler post-colonial walls that have been created that have prevented us from truly living our richest life possible when we don't allow ourselves to connect with all human beings because race which is a European colonial settler mentality the concept of race was created predominantly by the European um, culture the race itself they're the ones who created that and we have grown up thinking that there are different races when all in all there's really just one race and that is the human race on the planet and when we can actually break down those walls that's when we can live our richest most wholesome life possible and until we do that we're only just living a fragment of ourselves so you can be the most balanced person when it comes to sleep and food and relationships to other people like you but until you can relate to all people around you so that is people with different abilities that is um, people who have special needs, that is to the um, LGBTQ community, um, that is to the, um, you know, people of different colors, religions, ethnicities, cultures, um, places, um, all of those things. It's so important that we learn to break down those walls so that we can really really connect to everyone and when we do that we actually realize that we are all one and then we can even take it a step further than that and we can begin to realize that we're actually connected to the trees and the soil and the earth and the rocks and the concrete we have a relationship to concrete we have a relationship to telephone poles and the cow that's in the field next to me and the insects and the bugs and the microbiome that are in the soil but that are also within us as well now until those walls come down it's hard for us to relate to these other you know some people will see it as non-sentient non-feeling non-being non-living entities in the world but the fact of the matter is that we are connected to everything and everyone around us and it is truly magical when you arrive at that place and you realize that we are all one and so starting with reading books on anti-racism, reading about the history of how different cultures came to be in different parts of the world and the trials and tribulations and the traumas and the wars and the devastation and the oppression and repression that had to, um, that happened. And once you start to internalize that and understand what happened in our world, then that's when we start to develop things like empathy, sympathy, and then from that, we can start to develop a whole entire new relationship with the people around us and then extend that on to the things around us as well. So 
I know it's a lot to take in. I know that this was a long podcast. Um, I hope that you listen to it in chunks. If you weren't able to listen to the whole thing in one go, there's no need to have to listen to something fully entirely, especially with our long form podcasts. And if you got to the very end of this show and you're hearing this now, as you pass on this podcast to your friends and your family and colleagues at work, let them know that they can take it in in small doses as well. It can be baby steps to learning this stuff or to taking in our podcast or other long form podcasts or if you want to dive in then dive in and learn as much as you can so that we can collectively start working together to make this world a better place for all thanks for being with us on the eat reality heal show we'll see you next week bye-bye